0: Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information, it is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I think it's time for us to go directly to the danger zone. Wait, that's the wrong film. (laughs) Cue up the Kenny Loggins. (laughs) Cam, enlighten us. What are we flying to this week? We are flying alongside Clint Eastwood in 1982's Firefox. This is a strange one because I've spoken about this online with several people over the last year and a half about this film. We've had it suggested to us a bunch of times. Yeah. And, I mean, we've covered Clint Eastwood before, although this is a very different film to Where Eagles Dare. But I know you you definitely had seen this one before, hadn't you? Nope. Not at all. I had never seen it. The most
1: exposure I ever had to Firefox was when I was a kid seeing commercials for it on TV and being like, oh, an experimental plane in Clint Eastwood. I should watch that.
0: Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And then never watching it. (laughs) And never went back. Okay. So neither of us have a connection with the film.
1: No. I mean, I've watched a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. This was always an outstanding one for me, Uh, you know, a gap in the filmography I had bought a copy a handful of years ago and just had it on my shelf and just never got around to it, largely because of the length. It was one of those, if you have a night where you can watch something, it was like, uh, it's a little over two hours, uh, maybe something else. And so it just got pushed off. And uh, this podcast
0: gave me a great excuse to, well, go ahead and actually watch it. That's one of the things I wanted to bring up in the episode and that. There was different lengths of this film and different releases. I know I've seen one version, but apparently there's a a much longer version than what I saw. Which one did you watch? The, uh, was it two hours and 17 minute cut?
1: So, oh, you've seen more than me then. I've seen two hours and five. Oh, okay. So what the case here was the, um, versions that came out, I saw the release cut, which was the one that played in theaters back Mm -hmm. in the day in 1982, but there was so many complaints about the pacing of Firefox that Clint Eastwood went and did his own cut of the movie that was the version you saw, the two hours and four or five minute version. And then there was also longer versions made for um, TV as well as various home video releases. But yeah, I would have been the theatrical.
0: So hang on. My version was the shortest version. Yes. This is the one they cut down after people had said it was too long and drawn out. Yes. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh.
1: I have a question for you. If you look up Firefox in, like, the version that's available to you in the UK, like the Blu-ray or something, which version is it? Like, is it more common maybe to market the, you know, the 2Hour17
0: version in North America versus the UK? Well, I rented it on Amazon Prime. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I, I don't know is the honest answer, but yeah, mine was two hours, two hours and four minutes. I think was the exact time. Um, maybe we should compare notes. Yeah. Later in the uh, in the review about what we saw and didn't see. Yeah, I mean, ugh, that may be a little tricky, but I'm sure we'll stumble across at least a
1: handful of moments. Hmm. For me, the version I was watching was it's from the Clint Eastwood DVD collection. So um, that would have come out a ha- you know handful of years ago. So I'm not sure if that's the de facto release that they would go to when it came to Blu-rays or the online streaming versions now. But this was what they put out, um, you know, Warner Brothers put out on DVD, at least in North America
0: back, I don't know, in the early 2000s or something. Well, anyway, we're losing altitude fast, if you excuse the <laughs> flying pun. Let's get us back on course Letterbox.com synopsis, here we go. Firefox, the most devastating killing machine ever built. His job, steal it. The Soviets have developed a revolutionary new jet fighter called Firefox. Worried that the jet will be used as a first strike weapon, as there are rumours that it is undetectable by radar, the British send ex-Vietnam War pilot Mitchell Gatt on a covert mission into the soviet union to steal the firefox but boom
1: by the way i want to say firefox i'm sure in 1982 was a great title
0: but now if you google firefox it's very frustrating <laughs> i mean triple x as a film was ungoogleable yeah for other reasons more complex reasons that you'd want to delete your internet cookies afterwards right after about 5 minutes <laughs> Or what felt like five minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, but Firefox, you search it on anything and it says, do you want to download Firefox? You have to literally type in Clint Eastwood Firefox or Firefox 1982 to get anywhere near where you want to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's strange. It's got a weird legacy in that sense. But uh, I do wonder if uh, Mozilla named their browser after this film. <laughs> I guess uh, who knows, right? I don't think anyone has ever asked that question and we probably will never have an answer to it. Uh, but that that was a a fine synopsis. It did a job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very basic. Like, really, when it,
1: you boil it down, this movie, at least in my version, may have been over two hours long,
0: but at its core, it's a very simple story. Yeah, it, it really is. But um, I'm keen to know, because this is an Eastwood-directed film. I know he had directed some other films before this point, but I think this is my first experience of an Eastwood-directed film. Did you ever see like Unforgiven or, I mean, he's
1: made so many, you know, the Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, I think I've seen
0: Gran Torino. Okay. Yeah. He directed that. Okay. I think uh, I, but I barely have any memory of it. And you know what I'm like with prestige films and things like that. I just don't, I don't watch them often. So let's just say this is my first experience with him. So can you tell me how we got to Firefox?
1: Yeah. So for Clint, this was his ninth directorial effort. He'd started off in 1971 with Play Misty for Me, which is an amazing movie, kind of a early version of like the Fatal Attraction kind of film with um, Jessica Walter, the mother from Arrested Development, as a psycho stalker. It's a really entertaining movie. And he continued on from there. Uh, This was the follow up to 1980s Bronco Billy, which I haven't seen. It's in my Clint Eastwood collection, so I will get around to it at some point. That was my old nickname. Bronco Billy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. other reasons. (laughs) This was also his first film as producer. So he was working with a script by two writers, Alex Lasker and Wendell Wellman. And this was their debut effort. Um, Wellman had been an actor before, um, and Lasker hadn't really done much of anything.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the former, but the latter Wendell, we will actually be speaking to later this week for a spy master interview all about Firefox, and he actually went on to work with Clint uh, more after this film as well, so we're gonna dig into that as well.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that conversation. And also, Wendell Wellman, you know, in his acting days beforehand, in nineteen seventy four had started a movie called The Klansman, which is pretty much forgotten to time, but it was directed by Terence Young, so we can talk to him about just being directed by one of the great Bond directors. That should be really interesting. I didn't even know that, but that's why you're the research guy. Yeah. And Lasker, I should say, did go on to write a couple of things people may have heard of. He wrote Beyond Rangoon, which was a Patricia Arquette vehicle in the 90s. He also um, co-wrote Tears of the Sun, the Bruce Willis um, action film from the early 2000s. And they were working with a novel by Craig Thomas who was a welsh author who'd written the book firefox in 1977 now i was not familiar with craig thomas but he was in many ways an originator of like the techno thriller tom clancy usually gets the credit for it but he was doing that sort of thing around the same time if not earlier and most of his novels were set within mi6 and featured characters like mitchell Gant and kenneth aubrey and so He actually wound up later writing a Firefox sequel as well and dedicating it to Clint Eastwood. So I should check into like more of this guy's work because I am kind of curious. Like, I didn't know Mitchell
0: Gant had other ongoing adventures. That just by itself is fascinating to me. (laughs) Which then makes me wonder why we never had a follow-up. But then I don't know if Clint Eastwood's the guy that... I suppose the Dirty Harrys are all sequels. Yeah. Maybe he does do follow-ups. Okay. Yeah.
1: Not a lot, though. Like, the Dirty Harrys are kind of a rare beast. He doesn't tend to do many sequels or anything. So, yeah. Um, and the story of Firefox was inspired by a real-life Russian fighter pilot named Victor Belenko, who defected to Japan. And um, he when he did that, handed over his uh, MiG-25 Foxbat fighter for them to study. So that was sort of the kernel of the, the idea that led to the novel Firefox.
0: Okay so it is somewhat grounded in reality except for the whole speed and design and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean this okay. one's a little more sci-fi um when you're getting to like the brain reading kind of stuff but yeah. <laughs> yeah, huh? But uh
0: yeah, we'll we'll
1: uh, we'll link into that shortly. And of course the firefox of the film was a mythical plane um uh, but they took many of the design cues from the senior 71 Blackbird plane.
0: Now, Scott, are you a plane guy? Because I am totally not. <laughs> well, I live next to an airbase, but I'm not what Cam would call an aero fan. although I don't think that name's ever stuck. Or a, pl- a plane file. <laughs> but anything with file on the end is always a bit dubious, isn't it? It really is, yeah. I mean, there was the famous
1: X-Files, which is how I kind of stumbled across that term back in the mm. day. It was what they called X-Files fans. But uh, beyond that, yeah, you're really um, playing with fire with that term.
0: (laughs) Especially if you, like, cough or stutter or something. You're like, I'm a (coughs) file. Yeah. Sorry, what? (laughs) Hello, police? (laughs) No, no, I said Desperate Housewives file. (laughs) I love Wisteria Lane, don't arrest me!
1: (laughs) So this movie um, cost $21 million to make. $20 of it was spent on effects. Which is crazy, like that's amazing. Twenty
0: on effects alone. What was the total? Sorry, twenty one. Oh, so wow. So the rest of the film was one million, including cast, and then twenty million on effects. Yes, that's that's staggering. I mean, this is eighty two. What I I did have a question for you, but maybe it it. I'll just ask because we're here. Yeah, I'm not good with dates. You know this. Star Wars is already out. We've had Empire yep have we had jedi we have not we have not okay so effects space effects are getting good yeah but have we had top gun we have not that's 1986
1: hmm. so this is kind of
0: a proto top gun but it's a s kind of a sci-fi-ish sequel to star wars in a sense in terms of effects at least anyway
1: Yeah, they really were pushing the boundaries with this one. They brought in uh, John Dykstra to work on the effects. Now, Dykstra had worked on the original Star Wars and had butted heads with George Lucas along the way so he actually got replaced on Star Wars as, um, I think he was doing the miniatures on that movie but um, he was ultimately replaced and um, he did still win the Oscar for Star Wars so it was very good for his name nonetheless because he pioneered so many of the effects of Star Wars working with you know, creating new camera technology and all that sort of thing. That was kind of the the rift between him and Lucas was Lucas felt he was spending too much time building, you know, state-of-the-art camera operating systems versus delivering effect shots. So they were very behind on the effects. So that was kind of where the rift came. And he ultimately did not come back and do Empire or Return, but he would go on and do things like um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. He did the first two, uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Mans. He did the more recent Godzilla, and he did several Tarantino films as of late as well. So things have worked out fine for
0: John Dykstra.
1: He's a two time Oscar winner. But yeah, the Star Wars world was uh, very short lived for him.
0: I mean, they say Spider Man 2 uh, was the best of the Spider Man movies. Yeah. I mean, I found it a bit much when the Enterprise and the Death Star turned up. And Toby Maguire to take them down. But that's just me personally.
1: Yeah, I agree. I know it was a bit much, but yeah. And so he developed new technology for shooting the flying sequences in this movie. And it gets a little techy. So it, it had a lot to do, basically, just to get it across to the layman, with painting the models in phosphorus paint and shooting them against um, very dark backdrops with very strong light, which helped make the planes look very. Fairly clean against very clean backdrops like blue skies and the snow, which had been a problem before, which is why, you know, with Star Wars, it's in front of stars, it's in front of blackness so much. Whereas here in Firefox, they had to be shooting against like clear blue skies and not make these things look like they were just like glowing objects bouncing around. So that was sort of what he pioneered
0: for this movie. We'll get into the effect later on, but it's interesting that this comes in the shadow of The Empire Strikes Back in terms of setting up what special effects could be. Yeah. And when you think
1: of the Hoth sequence with the um, walkers and snow speeders, like you could tell that they were pioneering similar kind of technology on their own, you know, side of industrial light and magic at the time as well. And that sequence looks sensational as well, but we'll talk about Firefox's effects a little later. So as I said, budget 21 million domestically did 46.7. So it, doubled just over doubled its production budget it was a hit i don't have any international numbers i don't know what the international release strategy was back in the day
0: but uh yeah i i've heard from a couple of people that are european or in the uk and they did see it so it it did get released here i can confirm that at least
1: yeah it just doesn't have the numbers online anywhere which is always strange you run into this a lot with movies before the era where hollywood cared a lot about international money They were all about domestic. So, so often they just kind of ignore what the international tallies were. Um, I wonder if that had to do with a little bit of Hollywood accounting of like, don't worry. We don't care about that money. None of it matters. Meanwhile, they're just like quietly raking it in being like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, so you'd say they don't, they're not declaring it because then they can keep it. Possibly. That's a pretty smart move. There was weird percentage cuts though, where like, I think it was
1: China perhaps, Where they only got fifty percent of what the movie's made, so like there was different distributions in terms of what they got back from various countries, which is also why they cared less because when in North America they got far more money back.
0: I suppose tax and stuff like that makes sense. I'm actually just genuinely surprised this film did so well. Not to not to knock on the film necessarily, just it doesn't feel like something that's been around to me. Yeah, it doesn't feel like this sort of spy slash sci-fi epic that people fondly remember to me kind of
1: the same thing i mean i remember tv commercials um and maybe like the odd person mentioning it to me like oh have you seen firefox no i haven't okay well moving on <laughs> you know that sort of thing but it's not i mean i guess i can say just in terms of you know british columbia you know the people
0: i've met along the way
1: not many bring up firefox
0: well it's not even the first Uh, spy film people bring up when you mention Clint Eastwood? No. You'll get Where Eagles Dare, you'll get the Iger sanction, which is the other one I hear a lot. Yeah. This is not one I've, I mean, as I said, people didn't mention it to us on Twitter, but we hear from people on Twitter all the time, like, hey, do sneakers, or hey, have you done Mission Impossible yet? No, we haven't. But this is not one that it's come up two or three times, maybe. No, they're bothering us more so for follow-up episodes on House on 92nd Street. They they want the uh one of our dinosaurs is missing House on Ninety Second Street crossover that uh, that you're currently writing is that right Ken? That is correct. That is what my other pandemic project is. <laughs> <laughs> that that should never see the light of day. It probably won't. No mm. matter how hard I try. <laughs> <laughs> the top
1: three for this year: number one was E. T. Number two was Tootsie, starring Dustin Hoffman, and number three was An Officer and a Gentleman. Um. Yeah, three pretty established
0: films right there. Which is ironically how we met. Um I I bust the door down, picked you up and you just took my hat and I carried you away. Love lift us up where we belong, Scott. That's a that's a cracking film. To be fair, I, I didn't think that film came out this year. So this is a quite a big year with E. T. as well. That's uh this is the post Jaws era, isn't it? Like this is where you get the blockbusters now and the big films that people remember.
1: Yeah, it's the fun days of like, them really just, like, rolling the dice on what could be a blockbuster? They're like, well, this has big stars and it costs money, so hopefully people show up to it. Versus now where everything's couched in. Will audiences know what this is? Like, is this a recognizable IP that we can market to them? Or remake? Or, you know, that sort of thing. Back in those days, they're just like, I don't know, kidding an alien? Could make some money.
0: <laughs> Clint would want to spend 45 minutes in a cockpit?
1: Sure, let's see. Yeah, why not? Let's throw some money in those effects and hopefully people show up. So uh it was a fun world to look back on. I'm sure at the time though, if you go through like uh film critic writing, they're like, This is it. This is the end of movies. And I remember, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of writing at the time that like Top Gun was ending movies. Like this is one of the worst things that's ever happened. You know, the MTV movie, basically.
0: Well you hear like um Scorsese and like Ridley Scott just saying, Oh, it's all crap now. It's all content. Which I to a degree, agree with. Yeah. Because I think a lot of stuff that, like Marvel, for instance, is pumping out is after dross. Like Hawkeye, I don't care. I genuinely don't care. Um, but I think there's at least some imagination in the films this era. I don't think there's as much imagination now.
1: It doesn't feel like it, or it's a different type of imagination you're getting in those days where people really are starting from a blank page and being like, how do we create a world here? versus how do we adapt a world or how do we you know just kind of feed into what people want from this world so it's a little more fun to go back to i find i don't know in like 30 years if people have a great fascination with going back and watching mcu movies no or they'll
0: binge them yeah they'll watch iron man one to three in a day and be like "Ah, i guess that was okay yeah yeah and they couldn't tell where one begins and the other one ends so
1: at the worldwide box office We know the international numbers were apparently invisible, but it didn't matter. This movie was a hit. So it landed at number 15 between the Richard Pryor comedy, The Toy, and the cult fantasy epic, The Dark Crystal, a movie that terrified young Cam and his sister back in the day.
0: I watched that recently because I was going to try and watch the Netflix sequel. Yeah. I think I did watch Dark Crystal as a kid. I think I seem to recall seeing it, but um, I I wasn't that uh, fond of it when I went back to revisit it. I hated it with a fiery passion
1: when I saw it as a child because it was so horrifying to me. I was just like, that was an unpleasant experience. I did not enjoy that at all. I watched it a handful of years ago with my uh, then roommate. She was a huge fan of of that movie. It's one of her favorites. And
0: I enjoyed it a lot more on the revisit than I did as a kid. That's fair. I don't think I was in the right mood for it at the time, which happens a lot with me, unfortunately. But back to the positioning. It only doubled its box office. It's surprising that it was fifteenth without even this international number that we'll never know. For me, it's just like nowadays films do a lot better to get to fifteenth. Yeah, um,
1: it's just like the mega grocers, right? Nowadays, where yeah. also let's just account for ticket costs. Uh, how much did a ticket cost in 1982? Uh, nowhere near the twenty dollars I paid for a ticket to Spider Man No Way Home. How much? Twenty dollars.
0: Flip. That's a lot. I'm uh-huh. lucky I have one of those like Movie Pass things, where you just get unlimited tickets. That's a no. I couldn't deal with that. Well, to be fair, it's usually about ten pounds here. But well, what's the conversion? Is it two to one in Canadian dollars to pound?
1: I don't think it's quite two to one. So I think it would probably be for the conversion would probably be something like. 17 or 18 dollars right
0: but did you see it in like imax or something
1: uh so we saw it in the avx room which is not imax but they charge extra to sit in that room and then they also had 3d my most loved thing which is every marvel movie they force 3d glasses on you in north america and it it looks like garbage because the whole movie's set at night
0: i i still don't get this and if if you want to cut this cam that's fine but like a small tangent here Every time we talk about films that you've gone to check out, especially MCU ones, you're like, yeah, I had to see it in 3D. That is just not a thing here. I was looking at the Spider-Man No Way Home listings, and there was one 3D showing the whole day on the day it came out, because no one goes to them here. I'm genuinely surprised they force it on you there, because no no one goes to 3D films here.
1: Yeah, if you want to see it on the good screens with the good audio, it's going to be in 3D when it comes to a Marvel movie. And I didn't pay that to see Shang-Chi or Eternals, I just took the smaller rooms. But Spider-Man, it was such a big deal that we decided to just go for it. But yeah, the whole movie's set at night and 3D is dingy and ugly. So it was frustrating. But you know, just getting back to Firefox, you just compare what a ticket to Spider-Man would have cost now versus what a Firefox ticket would be. It kind of makes sense why movies like this land quite high on the list, because the idea of a movie making it over a hundred million in those days, it happened but it was kind of a rarity
0: that people got really excited about. A Star Wars or something like that. Yeah, yeah. E.T. Yeah. Well, to be fair, i thinking about it. I would love to see this film in in 3D, especially the the, the third act of just in the cockpit. And also the flight stuff would have been quite cool in 3D.
1: Yeah, I think there could have been some cool stuff um, in this movie. But just to wrap us up, a couple post-release notes to make. In 1984, Atari put out a state-of-the-art game based on this movie using laserdisc technology and it was the only atari game to ever do so and they put it out in two different formats so like this game was very flashy as a release i'm sure people a little bit older than me would have memories of the firefox arcade game
0: so was it an arcade game as in you had to go to an arcade to watch it you couldn't play it on your ataris at home
1: I'm, yeah, ooh, I don't think you could play it at home. I think it was an arcade only because if it's using LaserDisc technology, I don't know that the home versions would have been capable of doing that.
0: But what was the LaserDisc do? Was the LaserDisc in the machine? Yeah, it was actually like playing movie clips. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, you didn't you didn't get that when you were playing the Simpsons game.
1: No, no. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, also. This movie has a kind of a weird legacy of footage from this movie popping up in other places. So the opening credits of Back to the Future 2 play out over footage of Firefox. All the scenes of like, you know, Clint flying through the sky, they basically use that sky footage and um play the opening credits of Back to the Future 2 over it. What? Yeah. No, walk me through that again. The if you watch Back to the Future 2. Yeah. And you watch the opening credits. Yeah. You are watching footage from Firefox. So all the Sky footage is all from Firefox. Huh.
0: That's bizarre. I wonder if it was just like a, like a fox or 20th century fox thing or something like that. They own the footage. They just repurposed it. I don't really get
1: it because I believe Firefox is a Warner Brothers movie. So I don't know how exactly that happened, but that was the case. And also... um. Many years later, in 2012, when the uh, Trouble with the Curve film came out, which starred Clint Eastwood as a former baseball player, they had flashbacks in the film, and it was footage from Firefox.
0: Wait, was it the footage of him naked in the showers in the Russian base? Or? Clearly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Assaulting a man in his, his underwear. That's uh, yeah. I would often think back to that as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. weird... How bizarre. Yeah,
1: weird, like, postscript of, like, recycled firefox footage out there
0: i get the back to the future thing because hollywood does reuse stuff you look at the star trek films they often reuse mm-hmm. clips from other films and, and the tv shows but in 2012 it just seems odd that they do it then yeah i guess if you're going to do a flashback you're looking for young clint footage
1: what other movie do you want to represent young clint more than firefox
0: Actually, speaking of Spider-Man: No Way Home, at least they didn't de-age him in 2012.
1: Exactly, exactly. Although it would have been amazing if they used footage from like Paint Your Wagon, where it's Clint singing songs in in cowboy attire. That would have been an amazing flashback.
0: He lived a very different life back then. He did. He did. We don't talk about those days anymore. He he doesn't. He's very he's very quiet about it. Not his politics, but he's quiet about that. Exactly. Well, uh, I think we've arrived at the destination, Cam. It's time to strap on our mustaches and plug into the Neuralink because we need to talk about this film.
1: We do indeed. So why don't you start for a change? I'm
0: really curious about your thoughts on Firefox. This is a film of like two halves for me. Yeah? And it's, There's a very distinct line I can draw where it becomes more interesting. Although I do like the opening. The opening of him in in like living somewhere... Hiding away from his PTSD. And I love that element. Yeah. I wish it had more time. Um I find that a bit fascinating. And as soon as he's on his mission, between that and getting to Firefox, it is Snoresville, USA. <laughs> for a film that is designed about a Mach 6 plane, it is flying, for that part, at like minus Mach 6. It is sleeping its way through, which is... I, I bet some people really enjoy the sort of espionage element of this film, and it, him infiltrating the the base. But there's just he's just it's just kind of there. He just exists and he's moved from place to place by other people. He has no agency. He's just kind of stumbling through blocks. The the one bit maybe in the train station has a little bit of tension to it. I'll give credit there. But there's there's all these moments where he's like talking to the scientists and it's just okay, okay. It got to a point, it got to about the one hour mark. And I remember I had to pop to the bathroom. So I paused it and I was like, oh my God, it's only been an hour. (laughs) This is is literally torture. What is going on? Are we not at the end? Um, And I came back and then like 10 minutes later, he's in the plane and it just picks up, it picks up, it gets faster and it actually becomes more enjoyable for me. But that being said, overall, I like what I see in this film. But the middle, I guess, or the, the, the middle feeling of the sandwich from the beginning and the end is so dry. So dry. What, what do you think to that? I'm of a similar mindset. Um,
1: I I knew it took a while to get to the plane. Like I knew that going into the movie, that it was more the climax is the big plane stuff. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense when you just consider the era and how much it would cost to do effects. That they're probably not going to do a two-hour, 15-minute Clint flying a plane movie. So that was all cool, and I was looking forward to the spy elements. But this... I, I too, like the intro. It, I like that he was wearing, like, <laughs> Rocky Balboa sweats jogging
0: through the Alaskan wilderness. He's even got the towel around his neck and, like, that classic Rocky look. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's how everyone worked out in the 80s. Yeah, so, like, I, I loved just the introduction of
1: Clint there, him having to go, to go on this spy mission... Um, the way they set all that up, I was really invested. I'm like, oh, this is going to be really interesting. And I was just looking forward to more of that Cold War, Clint having to get to this plane. And we've watched a lot of movies like this, where we see people go into, you know, these very um, foreboding places, whether it's East Berlin or in this case, the Soviet Union, you know, like that could be really interesting, um, tense stuff. And I was just, stunned at how slack the movie was and I saw the longer cut I don't know what was missing versus you know from your version to mine but like the pacing for that like hour plus for him to get to that plane was just rough and as you said like a lot of it is Clint just as kind of a standby dude like just watching things happen as you know he's kind of caught up in this sort of resistance movement and they are the ones making everything happen You get a fight scene with Clint, you know, in a bathroom where he takes a guy out, but he's quickly told that was really stupid to do. (laughs) And you're like, okay, (laughs) Clint's lone moment of actually doing something for his own didn't really pay off. But uh, I just found, like, the journey to the plane. One thing that popped into my mind was the classic Simpsons joke of the um, long drive to the fireworks factory. And this movie, I mean, that car was in neutral. headed towards that fire uh, fireworks factory. <laughs> and it was like, okay, like, I know we're going to get there eventually. And I just kept waiting for, like, something to really jump out. Sure, Clint can be, you know, kind of a passive character. That's fine. But, like, give me a really dynamic supporting character that just really brings the movie to life. And, you know, there's a couple along the way who are, like, memorable faces. You know, the guy who drives the van, um, who's the most, you know, primary of the helpers throughout the movie. Like, he has a little bit of an interesting backstory, but it's kind of not enough to inject energy into the movie. And I was reminded a lot pacing-wise of dot, 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 The Little Drummer Girl, where oh, I was like, "Damn, okay. Like, I didn't dislike The Little Drummer Girl maybe as much as uh, you did, but, like, you cannot make an argument for the pacing of that movie. Like, it has real pacing problems, and I felt that here, too, Especially when I got to that ending section, which I found to be a lot of fun. So I kind of am in the same boat as you where I went into this like really excited to see Clint Espionage. Got a little bit of it, but ultimately it was the plain stuff that I walked out really happy with. Um, the rest of it, uh, you know, I could take it or leave it.
0: Maybe, maybe Chris Hewitt was right. Maybe we shouldn't be doing a spy movie podcast. We clearly didn't like the spy stuff in this film.
1: Well, you know, I will say, if you look up reviews on Firefox, it was not a particularly well-reviewed movie at the time. So, okay. I think it's a little more of a cult film. Like, there are people that are very passionate about Firefox. And, you know, hey, all the power to them. We all love movies that aren't necessarily the most popular. I, I will go to bat for Jaws 2 any day of the week. Um, so, hey, if they got Firefox, have fun with it. Sure.
0: I, I mean, not to take away from the film, it's got some really good stuff. But what I find hilarious is in the film we get. I spent. I think we spent about an hour and ten minutes in my cut getting to him in the cockpit of the of the airplane. An hour ten of the jet. About an hour and ten. Mine was an hour and a half. So that's our twenty minutes right yeah. there. you had more dull espionage. I really did. I had so much. <laughs> <laughs> my hands were full of it I, I couldn't hold it all it was so much yeah. um, well, actually before I get to that bit let's talk about the espionage yeah. this is why we're here and we don't often talk about the spy stuff in these reviews sometimes and I think it's it, it's a disappointment we should focus on it because we're talking about spy films here and I think what really is a detractor for me when it comes to the espionage section and, and we both said it in our initial thoughts he's not a spy nor does he want to be a spy. But then you look at something like Alfred Hitchcock, who does the wrong man, wrong place trope, like Cary Grant, North by Northwest, who doesn't want to be a spy but becomes a spy, um, and you have fun watching him learn. Whereas Clint Eastwood here is is told he's doing it wrong and just kind of, uh, I don't know, guesses his way through it and has panic attacks.
1: Yeah, you never get a sense of a guy who's really getting better as he goes through the movie. Like, he seems really awkward going through the customs, you Mm -hmm. know, when he's entering the Soviet Union, and he doesn't really improve much from there. Like, there's just all these scenes of him being confronted by guards, you know, show us your papers, and, like, scenes like this, we've covered movies like this, we're going to cover more in the future, where there's, like, so much tension in these moments, where you, like, feel the character just, like, you know, just quaking in this moment internally, but having to basically act their way through it or bluff their way through it. We saw it in Bridge of Spies, too, with, you know, Tom Hanks. Argo. Argo as well. Yeah, moments like that, there was so much tension. And I wonder if, like, part of it is, like, there's something unconquerable about Clint Eastwood. He's so stoic. He's so tough-looking. We don't look at him as kind of having that fragility, and he doesn't project it very much. And so it's harder to maybe buy into him being at threat, like, at risk. I don't know. Like, there's just something missing here because a lot of it felt like him, kind of coming across with that stern, stoic look in these moments when it kind of needed someone a little bit vulnerable.
0: I, that was the magic word I was waiting for you to say, or I was going to come up with it. He lacks vulnerability. You know, you look at the scene in the train station that I pointed out in my initial thoughts. I liked that scene. I liked the fact that he took out the uh, the KGB officer. Yeah, um, killed him. Defending himself, and then there's this ticking time bomb as the as the soldier slowly finds the body, and he's trying to escape the train station. But even then, when he's up against a guard, like, oh, maybe we should call the hotel and check who you are. He doesn't look particularly scared. They, he's got a bit of like a sweat on, or they've sprayed some water on his face. But like, I don't know. There's there's nothing to me that feels like he's ever in any danger. Yeah. So I know he's going to get to the plane. I mean, it's on the box art, but. I know he's going to get there, so this is just kind of an inconvenience for a little while. Well, like, imagine if they made Firefox now.
1: Let's just say this version never existed, and in 2021 they were going to make, or, you know, around this time period, they were going to make Firefox. If you cast someone like a Matt Damon, you would buy him as a pilot, but you would also buy more of the vulnerability. Like, he has that, you know, just that ability to give off the sense of, like, feeling frightened or concerned or scared or anxious in a moment like this. Whereas, like, Clint, that's kind of his thing. Like, that's the iconic element of Clint in all these Westerns he did, the Dirty Harry films. He is this kind of hard-edged guy. You don't get that sort of vulnerability until, like, later in his career, he seems more interested in that with stuff like Million Dollar Baby or The Bridges of Madison County. There are movies where he is kind of put in danger. Play Misty for me, a movie I referenced earlier. But in a movie like this, he just, he seems a little too tough. You know, he just seems a little too hard edged to face off against a lot of these, you know, guards who look like people he could like just break over his knee.
0: Yeah, maybe. And, and, and then the other problem is as well, when he's not in these moments of tension, he's just traveling. Yeah. He's on the bus, he's on a plane, he's on a train, just waiting. And there's no tension at that point. You're just waiting for him to get to the next plot point. And that's dull. And you see, you have this, I mean, for you, it sounds like he had about an hour of it. I had 40 minutes of just watching him grunt some words. I And i sorry, Clint Eastwood fans out there. I, I like Clint Eastwood. I don't consider myself anti-Clint Eastwood. He just didn't give me anything in this portion of the film. But he gives me stuff later. Yeah. But yeah, just like the ability to create that sense of tension through the espionage
1: elements, you know, that really did for me hurt the the pacing of the movie and just like the intensity because you can have a slow burn film. Like I, I enjoy a lot of slow burn um, movies. I think of like Wages of Fear or Sorcerer, films like that that pop to mind where it takes a long time setting up the scenario. But when the scenario actually starts to play out, the action scenario... It's so tense because you know these characters so well. You're so grounded in this world that you're just, like, on the edge of your seat. Whereas here, like, if you're going to spend 90 minutes, for me, as a, like, slow burn setup for this big action finale, I want to know this Clint Eastwood character really well and have a real sense of his internal life, and I just don't get that.
0: I think the film thinks it gives it to you with the sort of the the Vietnam flashbacks when he's a Viet Cong and he sees that Vietnamese girl get napalmed and stuff. I think that's what the film is telling you is enough, but it's not really.
1: Yeah. Like I like that angle, the PTSD angle I thought was really effective and they got some really genuinely effective moments like that shower scene you touched on earlier. Like that was a really well done moment. And um, just like the concept of this character carrying these sort of demons from his past on a mission like this. I liked it. Really good idea. It's just that like they feel like these like little islands for the character where you have these PTSD moments, but you don't really get a lot of the character himself just
0: in a moment to moment basis. Which I I think is probably a limitation in Clint Eastwood. He's not known to be a particularly expressive person. At least in my at least where I've encountered him.
1: Right, but he knows his strengths. And I just wonder if this doesn't play as much to his strengths,
0: especially where it's a very passive role being carried from place to place. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe he is the perfect actor for this role, but he's not the perfect director for this film. That's also possible, yeah. And he couldn't bring the tension out in those scenes that we wanted to see. And of course, you've already said that there's a history of problems of editing in this film. Maybe it just wasn't edited very well.
1: Well, it's also like interesting where you have a couple years before this movie you have um star trek the motion picture or as many called it the motionless picture which was this effects driven kind of blockbuster that people sat through and were just bored out of their minds watching back in the day because it was so slow and i wonder if there was like a similar element to that here where it's like there are state-of-the-art effects in this this is a very expensive movie They are showing the audience things that they don't really get to see very often, if at all. And it's just taking its sweet time to get there in the same way that Star Trek The Motion Picture does. It's the long ride to the fireworks factory. And it's like, when it comes to movies like this, you generally want a really strong sense of pace. That's something Star Wars and Empire really had uh, strongly established. And it's just kind of lacking here. And obviously, this is a different type of movie than Star Wars and Empire. I don't want to relate those two things as say they're the same thing but like when it comes to sort of effects driven spectacle on a big budget level i think audiences have a certain expectation
0: i think this film has this sort of it wants to be a spy story and it wants to have that sort of james bond adventure about it but it it doesn't have the
1: charm yeah there's a moment where he's looking at his um counter that little device they give him the communications gadget And it says, like, 007 on it. And I was like, oh, I see what you're doing there. That's something I noticed. I didn't read any full reviews of the movie, but I just kind of looked at some blurbs from the era. And a lot of them made James Bond comparisons. And they said, this is no James Bond film. And so it's, like, interesting that in the 80s, they were looking at this being like, well, this is clearly supposed to be a James Bond riff, which I didn't really get the sense of other than a moment like that. I would have said it's more of a Cold War thriller than what I would consider to be your sta- your standard James Bond blockbuster.
0: Oh, well, I think that would be the case if it wasn't also hanging its hat on all these big expensive effects. But it wants to be this big action film, which is is James Bond's MO. So it wants to have a little bit of that and it wants to have a little bit of like the, the man who came in from the cold. It wants to have both sides of the spy spectrum.
1: I wonder if it's a little bit of it neither fish nor fowl. And people yeah. who are turning in for a, um, you know, effects-driven blockbuster get frustrated for that first section. People that are turning in for pure espionage maybe check out mentally in that latter half. Who knows? Sure. Uh, but people who are, like, really tuned in to kind of the weird wavelength of the movie fall in love with it. I wonder if it's a little bit of that. Like, you and I are big fans of Star Trek The Motion Picture, a movie that bores a lot of people. But... There's a weird energy that movie gives you that you can't get anywhere else. And maybe for people who are really big, you know, proponents
0: of Firefox, they get that. And it took me five viewings and a viewing in the cinema of the motion picture for me to finally get on board. And I don't think I'm gonna revisit Firefox any more times than the two I watched it for this podcast. Yeah, what was it like the second time? It was actually easier to watch the Espionage stuff because I knew there was an end. Right. Like I knew, okay, don't worry, two more locations and he's on that plane, talking to the airplane, having a Neuralink, all that weird sci-fi stuff, which I want to get to. Um, so it was actually easier because I knew there was an end to it. And so it actually felt like a more of a complete arc for the character, because at least then I, I wasn't expecting any more. I knew that that part was done. Yeah. But I don't think I would go back again. But why do I, um, what I want to do cams. I want to take us over to our likes. Yeah, yeah, we we kind of we haven't trashed it, but we've really spoken about our, our main dislike of the film, which is the pacing. But let's talk it's about frustrating. Things, yeah, yeah, it was definitely that's that's the perfect word, frustrating. But let's talk about things we did like, and I did brush on this before, but I did like the PTSD element.
1: Mm-hmm. I,
0: I I think that was a nice thing to acknowledge. It was called something else in the film, um, delayed stress syndrome. Sure. Uh, maybe that was an old term for it. I don't know, but it was interesting. I, I I almost would like to have seen how that really affected him more, instead of just having these like panic attacks, which is I'm sure a, a proponent of PTSD. There are other effects it can have, and I would have liked to have seen how that affected his spy mission more.
1: Yeah, like a little more of a psychological profile on the character, which we don't really get. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Um, I I liked what they gave us because PTSD wasn't a term being thrown around in 1982. Um, especially in pop culture. But I I thought it was a really good angle for the character. It gave me something. I just wish they'd done more with it. But um, it was very effective in some of those suspense sequences. Yeah, what about you? Something you liked? I mean, I thought the Firefox finale was really fantastic. (laughs) You know, there's some dodgy effects here or there, but it's a lot of fun to watch this jet just like taking down, you know, missiles and flying all over the place. And, you know, well, just uh, there's other elements of that I want to touch on. But like, what did you think of just like the flying effects
0: footage? Well, I read some reviews after I watched it a couple of times and I saw people. uh, Roger Ebert really liked this film. Yeah. But there were other people that really lamped on it, especially the effects. People that are looking back on it now that there's a lot of people like reviewed the Blu-ray when it came out 10 or so years ago. And just saying it hasn't held up at all. I somewhat disagree because I think if you look at A New Hope. It looks a bit wonky in stages. But it was, you know, it was of its time. This is 1982, and they spent $20 on it. I think a lot of it's on the screen, and I think you can see it.
1: Yeah, like there's the odd shot of the plane moving where you go like, oh, that's not quite right. Hmm. But that's the case for, like, every movie of that era. You know, like, Star Wars probably has held up the best of, you know, that sort of group. Um, Some of the Star Trek movies have actually held up very well as, you know, as well. But again, they have the benefit of, being filmed against like black sky, you know, like space. So that makes a difference. But this one, I thought it was a lot of fun and just, I don't know. I look at movies like The Last Starfighter or, or you know, some of the other um spectacles of that era. And like, even if the effects are a little bit wonky, they still have an energy and a fun to them. And I didn't think this one got overwhelming or exhausting that's something that does happen in some of those 80s practical effects movies where they just become like exhausting basically demo reels of effects that get really loud and kind of obnoxious that never happened here i thought it was all cleanly cut clint is a director who makes pretty you know pretty well refined films um whether you like them or not like there's not a lot of mess to his movies and i thought the effects really came across quite cleanly in this movie so I was down for it and I, even a bit where like they stop and um, you know he meets up with the guys in the submarine I thought the submarine effect was incredible when that was coming through the ice it was great it looked amazing and just I'll
0: tell you a trivia fact about that yeah please that is reused footage from another film oh really what movie do you know I've forgotten okay <laughs> I mean <laughs> that's a bummer
1: I was hoping Clint was the, like, shooting those models himself being like I have a very strong vision for how I want this submarine to look <laughs>
0: Sorry, what's your Clint voice again? Just, I
1: don't really have one. Just talking so here. No, I wasn't even doing one. I just kind of lowered my voice a little bit, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll pull it out just randomly at some point when I quote him or something like that. But I don't have a
0: set Clint voice. Sure, but I, I do agree with you. I think the the submarine turning up was was really fun. It was actually one of my highlights of the film. Um, just them having a little bit of fun and like the you know the whole Operation Harmless where they set out tents and, and wave at the Russian MIGs. It's a lot of fun and also like the tete a tete with the Russians in the the base that he's flown away from and like the first secretary of Russia calls him and like politely asks him to bring the plane back and it it's, this is just sort of fun stuff and, and then you've just got Clint Eastwood. He hasn't got a physically act. He's just sort of it's like head acting. there's a lot of face acting going on in that helmet it reminds me of like you know actually a lot of the star wars films funnily enough like you know red leader checking in Uh red leader standing by all this sort of stuff and it's it's 45 an hourish minutes of that and as you say doesn't outlive its welcome uh at all so I, i i'd love that bit it's actually my next like so good choice the star wars
1: elements were very strong with this one uh you, when you had this, was that a Star Wars pun? It was, yeah. When you have the sequence where he's flying through like the ice trench mm-hmm. with the other ship pursuing him, I'm like, okay, we're doing Star Wars here. And then through the movie, they've set up like Clint Eastwood's mother was Russian, and so he understands Russian, and yet we really don't see any payoff of this throughout the entire movie. Um, Clint's wonky Russian accent when he's like infiltrating the base and whatever is questionable, but at the very end. You get this voice over, over like Clint's face going, think in Russian. <laughs> and he does and destroys the bad guy. And I was like, oh my God, that is the most Star Warsy thing. Like, boy, they were really like even cl- trying to clone Star Wars, like what, five years after its release
0: in 1982. I also didn't know that jets could fire rockets backwards. I was really, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool.
1: I rewound that because I was so confused how that happened. I was like, wait what? And then I, yeah, saw that it fired the rockets backwards. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that's a thing with
0: these experimental planes. Sure. Yeah, I, I genuinely thought he would do like a loop to loop come behind him and, and shoot him, like you get in these sort of fighter pilot films. But um, no, I, I think all that, much as it is like an homage to Star Wars, it's not too heavy-handed where you're like, well, clearly this is Star Wars. There's moments, like he's got that little scanner that looks like it's straight out of an X-Wing. Even like the way his cockpit is Hmm. the way his cockpit is shaped that's a weird sentence to say um you know kind of looks like an x-wing but that's fine that it is of the era that's what people wanted to see they if they're going to see a clint eastwood film about him flying a plane they want to see him flying a plane
1: yeah even when you see the bad guys like laying out all the maps and everything it feels like the princess leia control room sequence from star wars Mm -hmm. yeah the uh yeah the star wars is strong with this one
0: for sure I quite enjoyed and this is a little like but I I thought it's worth mentioning is that kind of Dr. Strangelove feel of the Russians yeah especially later on where they're all bickering with each other and it's all just like politicians versus the military and that kind of like how nothing can ever get done because everyone's arguing with each other which is kind of the reality of government really and just fun character actors throughout
1: like they just found ways to just put in some recognizable faces, you know, the main uh, Russian that's tracking him, uh, Colonel Kintarsky, um, is played by an actor named um, Kenneth Coley, who the name probably won't grab anyone, but he was Admiral Piet in the uh, latter two original Star Wars movies, Empire and Return. He was the guy that got promoted up through the ranks as Vader kept killing all of his minions. So by the end, he was like, it was basically him, Vader and the Emperor standing side by side. So it was just fun to see that guy as the Russian tracking Clint. And there's just so many faces throughout this movie. You have Ronald Lacey popping up from um, Raiders. You know, he was in that. He's the guy whose face melted at the end. You also had uh, Wolf Collar, who was um, also in Raiders, the big blonde guy. So, again, just so many recognizable character actors who when you plug people like this into your movie, the movie will be better for it.
0: And it's also weird because like this film really doesn't have any other performances apart from Clint Eastwood. He is the, he's like the top actor and then there's several blank spaces and then there's a bunch of cameos.
1: I would make an argument for Pavel Yupenskoy, played by Warren Clark. Like they give him a lot. He's the dude who spends most of the movie shepherding um, Clint around and has this tragic story about his wife being thrown in prison for demonstrating. Um, He's the only one you get more of a character sense of. There's other, like, scientists who get some prominent screen time, but they don't get the material that this guy gets.
0: I, I wrote down, he's, he's actually in my dislikes section, but that's only because I wanted more. Right. I felt like he was the next uh, the next character after Clint Eastwood that had some development, and I wanted to see more of him. But he did provide us with maybe the funniest moment in the entire film. Which was? So... He has succeeded in his mission in delivering Clint Eastwood's character to the depot. And Clint Eastwood has taken the plane. And currently, Jepenskoy is lying in a ditch somewhere trying to get away from the dogs. And he sees the plane fly over and he's like, I've done it. He's been shot at this point. He's, you know, he's on death's door. The dogs, the, the Soviets are right behind him. He takes a gun to his head. And you don't see him shoot, but you know he just took his own life. And the score kicks in. It's like, da 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 which is a different show altogether. But, like, it's super triumphant music just after this guy's just wasted himself. It's hilarious.
1: Yeah. Did that work for you? Like, having, you know, him and, like, some of the scientists talk about, like, why this mission is so important to try to ground it so you, like, really want to see Clint triumph. Like, did that work for you?
0: Uh well I didn't need the line you Jews. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, that really was quite weird. But uh I guess that's an eighty two for you. Um I didn't get it. I, I, I understood that you needed to have some sort of stakes and they needed to create a diversion. Um I I would have been fine if it was just another spy that infiltrated and, and created a decoy and then Eastwood got in the plane.
1: Yeah. I think for me, like, the stakes that they're dealing with are so, like, crushing, right? Like, just the way they talk about... It. Like, when he's talking about his wife in, is in prison and there, he says, like, they do not treat her well. I'm like, oh, that's dark. Like, I don't know what's going on, but it's dark. Yeah. And the sense that, like, this whole mission about him getting that plane out is going to somehow make things better, I don't know that... And I know it's just kind of chipping away at this Cold War scenario, but, like... it. I d- I don't know that I understand exactly what the um what them getting the plane is gonna achieve other than having better obviously aerial technology
0: perhaps but eh well it was one of the questions I had was okay you steal the plane obviously there's drawings of how they made the plane they have blueprints so they could just make another plane but I guess by having a a working copy the uh, the allies or you know, the Americans can backwards engineer and make their own version of it so at least the russians won't have the edge yeah because they say early on this is this is not detectable on the radar it's mach 6 that's super fast and it's it has a capability of doing international uh intercontinental ballistic missiles icbms that we call them now yeah of delivering nuclear missiles f- from a very long way away so it's, it's, if this plane did get off the ground their best i think the the usa was at like mach 3 at that point the russians would have the complete edge. So I can understand why they want to take the plane down, but you you wonder what's in it for the scientists. Now they said that they're gonna go and be taken to prison afterwards or worse. So maybe it's just hey, we might as well one last stab at the Soviets before we get killed anyway. Um but like people like Yupenskoy, I wonder why he just decides to off himself.
1: Yeah. That's the thing, like the arms race aspect of it makes complete sense to me just in terms of you wanna have you know even tech or better tech than your adversary that all stands up but and obviously that's a very simple hook for the movie that probably does work it's more like when it comes to the human cost of these scientists that i i don't quite connect like their willingness to just give up their lives for it as much but i don't know i mean different life than i have
0: it also doesn't help that you're introduced to them 10 minutes before they're all killed yeah like, they're not really characters. If you'd had, like, a couple of scenes building up to them, like them building... You think of... um, What's the name of that film? Operation Crossbow. You've got two stories running concurrently as the rocket is being built, and the allies are trying to stop the rocket, and you can see the good guys and the bad guys working to get to their end goal simultaneously. So when you see them getting taken down, you understand what's going on. Whereas this, like you're introduced to these... uh scientists jewish scientists um who are going to have their lives ended after they've completed their work and then they're killed it's meant to have this sort of heart-wrenching moment where like the the married couple are laying like dying next to each other and i think that's meant to pull on the heartstrings but literally then clint eastwood takes off and you again you get a massive sweep of the score so it's i don't know maybe that's an editing thing again
1: yeah, and I did feel a little bit of an emotional moment when they were killed. Like, it was very brutal. The movie didn't pull its punches there. But I would have liked to have known them a little better as characters. Even if, like, like, look, I think we've agreed. Like, a lot of this Clint um, wandering through the Soviet Union stuff felt very slow. Particularly slow for my longer version. And I wonder if we could have just had, like, cuts to what's going on with the scientists' lives or something. So that when they actually get together, you have more of an emotional... Um, connection to them and their mission
0: perhaps and you can introduce them somehow before yeah so then then he clint hasn't got to do the whole like getting to know you thing right um but uh, we're in the minutia at this point trying to pick things apart um i i, I actually am out of likes really we I, I was gonna bring up the cameos but we've we've touched on that there is one other cameo we didn't mention. Uh, which listeners won't know, but I was texting Cam whilst watching it both times, trying to figure out who this chap was, because I said I knew him from something. And it was a chap called Ward Costello, who in the film played General Rogers, who's basically doing a presentation at the start. And I sent like Cam a, a photo of the guy. I'm like, where do I know him from? I'm sure it's Star Trek. I checked. It wasn't Star Trek. And I went back to my second viewing. I'm like, no, it's definitely Star Trek. And it turns out he's from two episodes in the first two seasons of Star Trek and Next Generation. The great era of TNG. <laughs> the best. The, th- the one I revisit all the time. Uh, one of the two episodes is of course Shades of Grey. Uh, a fan favorite. Uh, I'll tell you something I did like. There is the
1: communications gadget they gave Clint early in the movie. And they are like this is the most important thing ever. Your life depends on this thing. And I made a note. He is totally going to lose this gadget. And have to navigate his way home without it. And I appreciated that they didn't do that, that ultimately it was like, okay, he kept this thing, you know, on his person throughout the movie and uh, it paid off, you know, with him getting home. Like, I really thought it was going to be kind of that use the force Luke kind of thing of Clint not having this gadget.
0: Yeah, I, I figured that was like the James Bond gadget that will get taken off and will never used. Because Q always gives him a bunch of things that never even get used in the film and then a couple that do. So this is something I thought we wouldn't see, but then it does sort of play this, it's like a homing beacon, basically, a countdown to when he gets to the submarine for refueling. So that that was nice to see. Yeah, I thought that actually was a
1: little bit refreshing because so often when a character shows up and is like, this is the most important thing in the history of things, you're going to lose it. So uh, no, that worked for me. Um, I did also appreciate some of the brutality going around kind of the edges of this mission. Where you have Clint going in posing as a heroin smuggler, and they, you know, have him rendezvous with the three guys, including the heroin smuggler, and they beat him to death and like hurl his body into the water. The movie doesn't have a good sense of pace or tension, but you at least get the danger set up of like the stakes that they're playing with in this sort of you know
0: spy game. I think that goes back to it being you know not fish or foul. Like it wants to have this very dark reality spy story going on, you know, you think of you know Le carre or something like that. Uh, that sort of spy story. But then there also once a moment it was a James Bond and, and the brutality of the killings, especially the scientists are the ones that stick out to me in my head. And the guy under the bridge. Um they they were quite um icky. Yeah. Um realistic. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it did much else apart from that. Now, I had a question for you. What did you
1: think of the whole concept of this plane being wired to the pilot's brain?
0: Well, that's the first thing I had as a, as a dislike, so I'm glad you brought that up. I honestly don't know where they got this from. It's weird. And it, it's, it's so weird. Like I, I, I guess they wanted to make it kind of sci-fi, and they wanted to make this plane seem larger than life. What bugs me is then, obviously, I I know that all the Russian soldiers are talking in English in the film. But when he's communicating with the box, they're telling him you have to speak in Russian. And at moments in the film, he speaks in Russian. So why is he speaking English to the plane? And I'm like, I I know that really he's speaking Russian and we're just dealing with it. But then there's moments later on where he's having a, a PTSD attack and he's speaking in English. As he's been doing so the whole time. But apparently that's not right anymore.
1: I didn't really understand because when he's in that depot where they have the plane and he walks up to certain people and speaks Russian and then others, he speaks English. And
0: I'm like, yeah, "Eh?" (laughs) look, what? (laughs) But no, the bit at the end, though, for me was the weirdest thing, because he spent 30 minutes in the plane speaking in English, you know, without anything to really do. He's just sort of talking to the plane. as like a diary like, hey, guys, I'm just um, going to turn left. No one's listening. Cool. Uh, But that's how I feel on this podcast a lot of the time. Sure. What? We are Clint Eastwood (laughs) in the cockpit. (laughs) Maybe we're talking Russian. Maybe that's why no one listens. Mm, Maybe,
1: maybe. Um, Yeah, like, the brain thing, the way they set it up, I mean, it's so use the force, isn't it? Like, it totally is. Yeah. I don't know that, like, it pays off in a way that made sense. Um, Like. I don't know, like he shot another plane with a missile? Uh, I don't know.
0: (laughs) But like, if this is the weird thing, like if he had been talking Russian up until that point, and then started speaking in English because he was panicking, and then had to remind himself, use the force, Clint. Use the force. And then remember to speak Russian, that would have made sense. But he's speaking English, and at some point the computer's like, actually that's not good enough. I don't know. There's a few gaps there, and I mean, you get this... I'm afraid I can't do that, Clint.
1: <laughs> Close the pod bay doors. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like... Good stuff. <laughs> you have this whole thing about Clint set up early on, as I said, where his mother spoke Russian, and so he knows Russian. You don't get that sense through most of the espionage stuff, and clearly it's like this block for him because the fact that you have that voice over at the very end saying, think in Russian, to me
0: means that he's never thought in Russian the whole movie. And that's the moment where he breaks through and does it. But then like, what? how was he flying the plane? Wasn't there the whole point that it had like a neural interface where he had to fly it with his mind? Because they're saying in the, in the presentation at the start when they're talking about the capabilities of this plane, it's like, imagine what it's like to have a... A plane that could always hit its target because it's connected directly to the pilot. Yeah. But he did all those maneuvers leading up to the point where he's in the dogfight with the other uh, Firefox. So I don't don't get that. Was... Are we thinking about this too much, Cam? I I think
1: yes. I do think in 1982, the idea of a brain-controlled plane was something that they were probably... Having a tough time with, we can ask the writer about this actually, about, you know, just the whole concept of writing an action sequence with a plane that's wired to the pilot's brain. But like,
0: well, it's interesting because he's one of the, he's adapted a book. Yeah. So like, it'd be interesting. I'll do my research because we're not, I mean, usually we've done our interviews before we record our episode. We usually do it the other way around. We're doing this afterwards. So a lot of the questions we're devising here, we're going to take to Wendell ourself. Um But I think in the meantime, I might do some research on the book and try and find the differences. Mm hmm. Um, because it would almost lead me to wonder
1: if like what we're seeing of Clint in the plane up until that big climactic moment is just his pilot skills, just his natural, you know, instincts as a pilot. And then at the end, he's tapping into the neural link, but
0: I don't know. But like, wasn't the whole point that it was flown by the brain? I thought it was more like... Because he's using a control. He's using a a stick to fly it. And there's loads of buttons everywhere.
1: But it, like, picks up on your instincts faster than you're capable of moving.
0: Right? Like, that's something mm. they set up. Yeah. But but this is the weird thing. We're praising this section, and yet we're taking it apart. So maybe we should just let this go.
1: Well, I mean, in terms of spectacle, it delivers. In terms of logic,
0: I don't know. <laughs> I take a step back and look at the big picture of this film. It is Clint Eastwood, the Western guy, in a sci-fi spy film. I guess this is sci-fi? Yeah, I would say it's a um, sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. About a plane that you can talk to. I wish it had a voice like um, Kit on yes, Knight Rider, like a Kit style. Yeah. Mm. Who would be the voice of it?
1: Yeah, that's the question. Okay, it's nineteen eighty two. Who's doing the voice of Firefox?
0: Gilbert Gottfried.
1: <laughs> no, I think this is too early for Gilbert Gottfried.
0: Ah. Oh. It's Hello? um Oh, oh. Can we have um can we have Colonel Stock? Oh, that would be amazing. Colonel Stock from the uh uh funeral in Berlin. Yeah. And billion dollar brain. Yeah. And but it's not ah. Uh, 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 it's not English,
1: it's eastward. I guarantee, though, they're not getting him. Although, you know what? I say that, but they cast, like, British actors throughout this movie. So it's quite possible, actually. I was going to say, because the Harry Palmers are, you know, British productions, this is an American production. But no, I think that's actually quite
0: possible. Well, I mean, this they scooped so many people out from the sort of pinewood. Yeah. The, that, that Star Wars era of all these sort of American actors around in, in, in England. So, sure. I got another one, though. Go on. If people aren't happy
1: with Colonel Stock as a choice, um, you have you know a couple um, Raiders of the Lost Ark cast members. Like Clearly, they were picking up a couple of them along the way. What if we had John Rhys-Davies as the voice of Firefox? We've heard his Russian accent
0: in The Living Daylights years later. I definitely wasn't buying it in The Living Daylights. <laughs> well, I wasn't buying Clint's in this movie, so it would be a good match. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. I I I do my own research from time to time, and as part of my research, I found out that Clint actually did extensive studying of Russian for this film. I believe he put in a lot of effort. It clearly means that some things you're just not very good at, and you shouldn't try. Yeah, there's like some actors who just aren't good at
1: accents, like they just know it. Keanu Reeves is not good at accents. Um, you know it just depends it's like if you don't have the ear for it you're not going to be able to pull it off i don't have a
0: good ear for accents which is strange because you never you're right you never notice these things so you noticing that eastwood's russian was bad actually means it was awful <laughs> did it sound awful to you it was it was it's it's in my notes uh my third dislike is eastwood's russian accent what the f yeah the film cleverly kind of like makes him mumble it yeah Uh, So that's a choice. But we we have kind of touched on all of my dislikes, really. Yeah, I think I've kind of covered mine as well. Um, Interesting
1: movie, though. It was one that, like, there's been somewhere when we finished them, there was no reward for me sitting through Men in Black International again. Or, um, you know, Mm. there's been a few like that where it's just like, I don't know that, like, Taken 3 gave me any great wonders once I turned it off. But, like, this one it's kind of so weird I found it intriguing. I wish the pacing had been better in that first half because it would have probably won me over a little more. It's the type of movie like there would have been a good chance I would have walked out being like this was a really fun kind of B movie. I know it had an A-level budget but it has sort of B movie instincts a lot of the time and like I could have really had fun with it. It was just like that hour and a half leading up to the to the big fireworks factory was just such a chore for me. I watched this in the afternoon as well. I watched it about, I don't know, two or three in the afternoon. And I was getting drowsy through like the 90 minutes section. And like, I'm not someone who starts nodding off in the afternoon, watching something on TV or in a movie theater. So I was just like, what the hell?
0: Only when you're recording with me. That is, yeah, for sure. It'll do it to anyone. Most of the listeners are already asleep. (laughs) True enough. We were talking earlier in the episode about the whole content problem nowadays. And you mentioned Men in Black International. That is definitely a content film. There's nothing there. There is nothing there that will enrich your life. If anything, it will teach you to hate cinema. <laughs> and life. And life. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Maybe You might go the way of um, a Penscoy at the end of watching Men in Black International. But please don't do that. Please don't. But so at least this film is doing something original. It had a funny idea from a book and it went, let's just give it a shot. Let's put a big star on top, chuck him in the cockpit and let's see if it flies. And it did in ways and in other ways it didn't. I, I don't know if I think the whole like, I'm not sure if I buy the whole auteur thing where acting in it, starring it, producing it, directing it. I, I'm not sure that was the right choice for this film. I think maybe uh, someone who dealt with spy films before or who had dealt with action blockbusters before should have really helmed it as a director. And I, I'm, I think Clint was probably the right choice for the actor.
1: I'm leaning towards the latter of to do like an action blockbuster. Maybe he was overstretching because like he does fulfill multiple roles on so many of the movies he makes, mm-hmm. but it's like, usually you're not dealing with state of the art effects and, All this sort of stuff. So, like, yeah, I I don't know. Like, I'm so conflicted on him in this movie because I do love Clint in so many things. It's the lack of vulnerability to him in these spy sequences. Like, there's just so many elements of it. And his directing style, it's notable. He didn't make many blockbusters. Like, you don't have a lot of -of state-of-the-art, effects-driven Clint Eastwood movies in the future. His best stuff are things like, you know, Unforgiven, for example. I mean, ah. I'm kind of mixed
0: on him doing this movie. I read um someone's review post watching the film twice and they said this film is best served as a an accompaniment if you're trying to understand his growth as a director. It's like a diversion in his career that he learned wasn't necessarily the right one for him, but he tried.
1: Yeah, well when you look at a lot of his directorial efforts especially in the, you know, play mystery for me onwards, he's Like, really experimenting with things. And he still does it to this day, but he kind of stays within a zone he's, I think, very effective and efficient at. Um, But back then, he would kind of take a little more
0: considerable swings in weird directions. I think that happens with age we all learn what works for us and try our best I mean some people like to sort of say no I do everything different and I change every week but a lot of us like to we figure out what we like and how we are as a person and we build our life around that I would assume a creative career is the same you realize what your strengths are and you work towards them instead of highlighting your own weaknesses
1: yeah because he does like to genre hop I think of A movie like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which was like a southern kind of gothic film he made in the 90s. Um, Things like the 1517 to Paris. Like he does bounce around in terms of technique. He is fairly experimental. But there's also something about an Eastwood movie. You recognize an Eastwood movie and they have a certain feel. And I don't know that this sort of like high tech blockbuster really fits very well within the kind of the
0: Clint Eastwood model. Which is a shame, because there's a lot of films in this sub-genre. There's like techno-thriller, I think is what you called it earlier. But like War Games is something that pops to my mind. There's plenty of other ones that I'm probably forgetting the names of that I'm sure you could riff off. A Hunt for Red October would apply. Sure. A great and a spy one. So yeah, yeah good choice. And War, I would say War Games and The Hunt for Red October are better films than this. I agree, yeah. Um. I, I so I don't know whether this was the material, which I will we will take to the writer himself and then we'll inquire about that. Or if it was the wrong director or if Clint was the wrong actor. It just didn't work at times. Yeah. And it's that middle section of the film. I think that's the problem with it. That really weighs it down. I think you can forgive the wonky effects to some people, although I think the effects were fine. Um, you can forgive a lot of that if the middle section was a bit breezier. Yeah. I would chop it down. I would take half an hour out of it. I don't think he needs to do all this stuff to get to the base. I think you just have him turn up in Russia, have him go through customs, have a a bit more of a grilling, and then just get to the base, meet the scientists. They blow it up. He gets away in the plane. That's 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, that to me was the big problem for the movie. Like that's what made it tough to sit through. I did have one last question before we get to the knock list. Yeah. There are four books in the Mitchell gant verse the, the the gcu do you think that this film could be effectively remade today and be better
1: um probably um yeah i think there would be a way to do it now for sure i don't i don't know that we need to i'm someone who i don't although maybe there is something interesting about taking a blockbuster that didn't quite deliver on what its intentions were. Like I think this probably, the fact it's more of a cult film than a, you know, across the board smash with people shows that it didn't quite fully succeed. I think there's something more interesting about remaking a movie like that where, you know, there's a little more room for variants as opposed to remaking something like Psycho or something. You know, that is just like, why bother? So perhaps, I don't know that that'll happen, but there is also a Firefox down Uh, sequel book, so there's material to make multiple
0: firefox films no there's two more after that yeah yeah so Um, so there's there's material there's content people like content there's franchise there um i would i i think it's worth doing i think you could have you said matt damon earlier i I would go maybe a bit younger but i think you could have a lot more fun with this story um I I I I would like to see because we've said this before on episodes, and it's actually something you've said: is people keep remaking good films. Why don't they remake bad ones? Bad ones with good ideas. Yeah, which I think that's this, right? Is it bad? It's it's sort of more mediocre
1: than bad, but I think like it has interesting elements that would be fun to
0: see tackled again. But that's the thing. We we're, we're like a genre expert, right? We talk spy movies every week, right? If if I showed this to my mum, for instance. It would bore her socks off. <laughs> it, it hasn't got the mass appeal. Yeah. And she, li- I think she likes Clint Eastwood, I think. Yeah. I even think she would have trouble watching this film. I think it, if you remade it, it, it could have more of a broad appeal. Yeah, and a little punchier just in that early section as well. And the effects would look better.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Would they? Would they, well, Scott, with CG well, nowadays? I don't know. Like, people are gonna be raised on a whole generation's gonna be raised on um like very like kinda of cruddy CG, so
0: I don't know. Well I, I that's one thing we didn't give the CG credit for or the special effects credit for, is that at least the plane feels like it has weight. It does. You watch a lot of these Marvel films now, they just look like weightless CG messes. Yeah. Like the uh finale of Shang Chi
1: was like embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I I I watched a clip of it the other day and I was like, this is uh hurts my eyes. Yeah, it's like ugly to look at.
1: Whereas Firefox, um, that whole finale is pretty beautiful. A lot of it.
0: It's yes, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's got a weight to it. You can feel the plane almost, and there's a sense of um, not geometry, but you can you you, you almost you know where everything is. Yeah, geography. Yeah, like action geography, geography. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that and that's that's Clint.
1: Clint studied under a director named Don Siegel, who directed several Clint movies early on, including Dirty Harry. And he always said, like, he tried to kind of evolve the Don Siegel style, and that's classic action direction, and
0: Clint clearly knew what he was doing here. Yeah, I I think that's a bit the stuff that shines through in this film. But, Cam, we need to see, are the papers in order for Firefox? (laughs) What do you think, yes or no for the knock list? Well, Clint
1: may end this movie saying, I'm coming home, but he's not coming home to the knock list. (laughs) Because to me, this one's a no- I, again, I mean, I think we've kind of summed it up in the review, but it's just like, it's an interesting curiosity. But for me, just to say, as a
0: film experience, I found it somewhat lacking. To use the word you used earlier, frustrating. I think that's a perfect way of encapsulating my experience. And it sounds like your experience with the film as well. It's got really good parts to it and some interesting ideas and concepts that I think deliver. But there's just this like boggy, just dragging section in the middle where he's a spy and it doesn't seem like it suits him and, and and so you're just kind of waiting for the next moment to happen and then he takes off and the triumphant music swells and the guy kills himself great stuff but in terms of the inoculus i think i've telegraphed it it's an unfortunate no uh, curiosity absolutely if you like spy films i think maybe it's worth checking out if you like clint eastwood films it's maybe something that's outside his comfort zone um outside the usual Clint Eastwood film that you would be used to you think of Where Eagles Dare that's more what I think about when I think of Clint Eastwood than this film is yeah totally and I mean Where Eagles Dare was just such an efficiently made blockbuster that to me it's just a much better film than Firefox and surprisingly longer than this film and yet this film felt longer
1: yeah no that's very accurate very very accurate
0: So it looks like Firefox is not making the knock And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. But before we wrap up, we have some thoughts on Firefox from some of the listeners. At Kid Creole says, it might not be the best, Clint. A little talky, a little shaggy, maybe more action. It's the kind of early 80s Cold War thriller I could take a bath in all day. (laughs) Or a shower. Or a shower, yeah. (laughs) You beat me to it there, Cam. From Gavin Clark, he says, Firefox is another Clint Eastwood film that, for me, is a good story, poorly executed. I so wanted to like it, but it's kind of dull with poor effects. It could easily withstand a decent remake with someone like Matt Damon. No way! Absolutely. so." You and Gavin are on the level there, my friend. Holy smokes, we have a Neuralink going on. <laughs> Perfect. This is from John Porter on Twitter. He says, Faithful to the novel. An interesting entry on the CV as he does look a wee bit nervous at times. He doesn't get the girl, but I suppose he does get the plane. Fabulous supporting cast. Decent SFX. Good, solid thriller. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I thought one of the more
1: interesting co-stars as well was the fake mustache. I mean, I'm wearing one right now. What do you think? True, yeah, not bad. Not not quite Clint though. You're not quite a no. Clint, I, I
0: never could be quite Clint. To yeah. be fair,
1: none of us could. Uh, we we have tried. Clint would never be
0: doing a movie podcast. Could you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. I really can't. Hello, and welcome to Spy Arts Podcast. <laughs> uh. Actually, the funny thing with Clint, and, and you said this, this, this is a throwback to Where Eagles Dare. We did this in 2021. Um, great episode. Check it out if you have a chance. I'm sure we'll put a little link to it below for you. Um, they had a lot of dialogue for Clint Eastwood's character, and he asked specifically to strip it out. He wanted less to say and just wanted to exist in the scenes or just give uh shorter, snappier answers. And that seems to be the way that works for him because he does the same thing in this. He doesn't say a lot but he's very efficient with his words. and I think that's a credit to him. I think he knows his strengths. Definitely. I mean, that was always kind of the strong silent
1: mode was what really you know, worked for him on screen. And
0: I mean, you see that in Firefox as well. So thank you everyone for your thoughts on Firefox. And we'll announce the next week episode on Twitter a little bit before, so we can get your thoughts on that too. Which leads me on to Cam. What are we doing next week? We are tackling
1: 2005's X State of the Union with Vin Diesel... Oh, sorry. Nope. Correction. Ice Cube starring as um, an agent whose name I don't remember in the sequel to the Vin Diesel hit. Let's just call him Ice Cube in the review. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think we referred to... Um, uh, xander cage as vin diesel a number of times so i think that's not uncommon i mean we pretty much referred to clint eastwood as clint eastwood throughout f- the firefox review anyway i don't think we ever
0: said michael gantt i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i did no no i think i said it once in the intro uh well there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to check out triple x state of the union and join us next week now if you haven't heard We are on Patreon. That's right. We are over on patreon.com slash spyhards where you can find our two new series. Firstly, our Agents in the Field show where we cover non-spy movies from your favorite spy actors. Cam, tell them some of the films we've covered recently. Oh, well, we've done Jaws the Revenge. We've done To Catch a Thief. And uh, just
1: recently, we did Wayne's World with Mike Myers.
0: Excellent. Party on! And that's the kind of stuff you would hear in the episode if you joined us over on patreon but unfortunately firefox this week didn't make the knock list, but if you want to read more of the knocklist, it's over on letterbox.com spyhards we are of course a proud member of quite the thing and pod read podcast media networks and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners get out of here you bum